Welcome everyone to As for Me and My House. Thanks for joining us in your homes and around your tables as we walk through our study in the book of Philippians, which we have entitled, Finding Joy in Every Season. Well, we live in an upwardly mobile culture, don't we, Lauren? People are always seeking to get bigger, better, and more. So we're going to reflect on this question today. Where have you seen an example of intentional downward mobility? What does that look like? This is an important question to consider as we look in our study in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and at the life of Christ. Uh, Lauren, I know that you have witnessed an example of this kind of downward mobility in your life that really spoke to you. Definitely. There is one example that's just etched into my mind. When I went to seminary, I remember this young man named Ross in my theology class. We'll just say he was not the teacher's uh, favorite student to have in class. He was proud. He was outspoken. There was even one instance when my theology professor responded to one of Ross's arrogant challenges by angrily taking off his suit jacket and handing it to Ross. So as if to say that you, you teach the class if you know better than I do. To which the young man quieted down. Anyway, this young man, as he learned to study quietly and humbly, he was changed by the gospel. He was captured by the humility of Christ and the downward mobility of Christ, so much so that Ross went from being this wealthy businessman in a big house in a nice neighborhood in Portland to marrying a seminary girl and feeling called with her to become missionaries in a trailer park in Portland. Mm. So they moved into the neighborhood. He left the nice house in the nice neighborhood and the climbing of the corporate ladder to descend downward to minister to the least and the lost and to share the gospel in that place. These believers were also a part of our church in Portland, and it was their love for Jesus and for the lost that motivated them to descend and to pour their lives out in that way. That's a great example of real-life downward mobility. Mm-hmm. You know, last week we talked about um, outside opposition toward the church and internal opposition in the church in our divisions or factions. And we saw last week in our passage that unity matters. Um, It's not our natural disposition, um, but it's something that we have to put to death is this selfishness. Mm. We can't love others well. We can't be unified if we are seeking our own way and our own glory. And there is a different way that Christ models for us. Mm. And that's what we see in our passage today. Um, A a picture of Christ. um, and, And here's this picture of not climbing the ladder of greatness and success, but descending so that we might be raised up in the end. He shows us a downward mobility that stoops to serve. This downward orientation, let's face it, it's not natural Mm -hmm. for us. It's hard for us to grasp, but that's why Paul is reminding us of Christ who perfectly modeled it. And Paul doesn't just point to the life of Christ, but we should notice to the mind of Christ, Mm -hmm. to the thoughts and the outlook that led to such a descent. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, change the way you think. Um, Think like Jesus. As Christians, we must actively seek to have our minds conformed to the mind of Christ. Now, how does that happen? Hmm. Yeah, that's a vital question. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds in Scripture. Jesus prays for us in John 17 that the Father would sanctify us in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. 
My own example of how the Lord did this in my heart was through scripture memorization. And not just scripture memory, but the first scripture I ever memorized is actually this passage that we're studying today. I remember a time at university when one of the believers that God put in my life was wearing this rubber band around his wrist with Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And I just had to know what those verses were and why he wore that everywhere he went. And later he shared that he needed this reminder on campus, in the gym, wherever he went to have the mind of Christ, to guard his eyes and his mind and to live not for himself, but for the one who saved him. So I remember memorizing these verses, walking back and forth to the grocery store one day, and I'm so thankful that the Lord led me to just this most panoramic scripture that spans eternity past to eternity future. I'm so thankful for these verses uh, that I meditated on at the beginning of my Christian life, just to, to know who Christ is and what he has done. Yeah, and those verses, I mean, they had a real specific and practical effect on you, Lauren, didn't they? I mean, this is a, like this is mm. a big part of your testimony. No, definitely. Uh, the Lord knew I needed these verses specifically to focus on the truth of who Christ is, his humility, his downward mobility, because I would have a choice to make. Uh, would I live for the world or would I live for him? You know, around that time, one of my professors invited me into her office, and she offered me a position in San Francisco working with professional athletes. She was already working with uh, NFL players at the time. So there I had before me my Tower of Babel. I could train pro athletes. I could get my PhD in exercise physiology and make lots of money. And I'm not saying all those things are wrong. Uh, Ross from the previous story that I shared about, he went on to get his PhD and now he works for the seminary. Um, But these things were wrong for me. They were my Babel for my own personal glory. And this in fact made it hard for me to hear the gospel. People would always tell me that, Uh, that God had a wonderful plan for my life, and that was hard for me to hear because I had a wonderful plan for my life. But slowly the Lord opened my eyes to the fact that he not only died for me, but he also created me, and he knew what I was created for. He helped me to see that when I ran after my own glory, for my whole life I did this, that it left me empty. And when I surrendered to him and believed, he showed me that life was not about myself anymore. If I lose my life for his sake, I will find it. He brought to mind the scripture, what good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? He gave me a great desire to learn the Bible. That's the whole reason I went to seminary. I knew nothing of the Bible. I just wanted to know what the Bible said. And he gave me a desire to pour out my life for young women and to be the person I never had growing up. So instead of working with pro athletes and getting my PhD and making lots of money, I went to seminary to learn the Bible. I know it sounds crazy, but it came with much joy and much peace. And I can say that uh, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. Hmm. So to have the mind of Christ, we need to renew our minds in the word of God. And um, especially, wow, in a scripture like today's passage, uh, where we get the essence of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. You know, the challenge that we could face right now in today's study is to feel and grasp and sense the weight and the beauty and the glory of this passage, because it is a passage that might be very familiar to us. So let's try to hear this with fresh ears. Let's look at first verses six to eight that show us the humility of Christ. Verse six, speaking of Christ, it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what we have here is a statement of Christ's deity. This verse is speaking of before Christ came to this earth, and what we learn is that he was in the form of God. Um, 
the NIV says in the, in the very nature God, being in the very nature God. It means that Jesus possessed the attributes of God. He was God. He was not an imitation. He was not an angel, not a creation. He possessed equality, it says, with God. And so he is the second member of the Trinity. Yeah, John 1, 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see the deity of Christ there. And I love John seventeen five, where Jesus says, uh, glorify me in your, in your own presence. And he's speaking to the Father with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus has always existed. Our triune God has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so a reason that it's important to highlight this deity in this passage is because um, with what Paul's telling us, this will help us to be in awe of the sheer weight of what's coming next, mm. which in this verse, um, you know, it says that uh, all of this, that Jesus being God, being equal to Father, this was something that he did not grasp. Mm. He didn't seize it. He didn't hold onto it tightly. In other words... Um, all of his God rights and privileges he held loosely and he had a mind to be able to give them up. You know, I think we can call this his renunciation, a, um, a renouncing, not, not of his deity, but of his rights and privileges as God. So let's dwell on this for a minute. What does it mean? Let's dwell on what it means that Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Yeah, what we find is amazing. Jesus did not consider his position to be one that he would exploit for self-gain. Sinclair Ferguson said, we did not, he did not grasp or jealously guard his rights as the Son of God. And I think the text is now asking us to reflect on our own hearts. If we have not held too tightly to our reputation, to our pleasures and our comforts. Yeah, we have a tendency to be so tight-fisted with our lives. But Jesus shows us another way. He does not grasp his rights. He was willing to give them up. And yeah, not just willing, because now we see that he indeed would give them up. You know, it's one thing to say that you have an attitude or a mind to Hmm. do something, but it's another thing to do it, Hmm. right? And in verse 7, we see... Uh, the attitude of Christ went into action. So we move from his renunciation in verse 6 to his incarnation in verse 7. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now this emptying, this emptying does not mean that he gave up his deity, but rather that he laid aside his glory in heaven by submitting to the humiliation of becoming a man. So he didn't relinquish his deity. He surrendered his rights and privileges. I love this story from a pastor and professor named Brian Chappelle that really helps us to picture this. He tells the story of a, um, well, it's actually a story from an African missionary. And so let's let's paraphrase this. In, In a particular part of Africa, there's this chief and he is the strongest man in the village. As the chief, He also wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. Now one day, a man carrying water out of the shaft out of a deep well fell and he broke his leg and he lay helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, you know, one would have to climb down using the alternating slits that go all the way down to the deep well and then climb back up. Because no one could carry the helpless man up like this, the chief was summoned And when he saw the plight of the man, he laid aside his headdress and his robe. He climbed all the way 
to the bottom, put the injured man on himself, and brought him to safety. He did what no other man could do. And that's what Jesus has done for us, right? He came to rescue us. And he laid aside his heavenly glory, like the chief did with his headdress, in order to save us. Mm-hmm. Now, did this chief cease being the chief when he laid aside his headdress, Lauren? No, of course not. Did Jesus cease being God when he came to rescue us? No, of course not. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great illustration. So there was no subtraction of deity, but rather an addition of humanity, so that he is 100% God and 100% man. So this is incredible. Jesus keeps going lower and lower. Not only does he leave the glories of heaven to become a man, but he descends lower and takes the form of a doulos or a slave. This is not a rags to riches story, but rather a riches to rags story, at least in the first part. And we, you know, we certainly see this all in the life of Jesus in the Gospels, that he identified himself with the lowest of society. He's criticized for eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Um, It says in Matthew 20, 28, that he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus washed the disciples of his feet. And, and we're remembering right here in this text that he, he was God. He mm-hmm. is God. Mm-hmm. And he came in the flesh and he did these things. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he models for us true greatness. I'm remembering James and John campaigning for position and asking Jesus to do whatever they wanted, which was to sit on his right and his left hand in glory. And the other disciples were angry, probably because they didn't request this first. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. So true greatness in God's eyes looks quite different than we would expect. It is low, it looks humble, it looks meek, it looks modest. So again, in Jesus' humility, there's first this attitude of renunciation of his rights and privileges, and then his incarnation, uh, acting upon it. And it's so important for us that we understand that Jesus is fully God and became fully man um, because, really because of the atonement, Mm -hmm. right? Because uh, it is man whose sin needs to be atoned for before a holy God. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a sin debt that is so colossal Mm -hmm. that it's utterly impossible for any person to pay it back. But we need someone to pay it back. We need a perfect man to to pay for that sin. And the trouble is that, you know, none of us, of course, are that perfect person. Um, We've all sinned in Adam. And this is why God, the perfect one, became man, so that he could live the perfect life that we couldn't live, die the death we deserve, and be raised from the grave. So another relevance, though, as we think about the full uh, deity and humanity of Christ is that we have, you know, we have to understand this because if we get this wrong, mm. we're going to be in very dangerous waters. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how you can know that you've encountered a cult um, be- based on what they believe about Jesus. If, if in their religion they do not confess that Jesus is fully God and at the same time fully man, you've probably found a cult. Mm. And um, it's of the utmost importance that we know that Jesus is not <clears throat> just a prophet, not just a good man or teacher, but is God. Um, he didn't just appear as a man, but mm-hmm. is, is God, is man. Mm-hmm. Most so. definitely. Yeah, we, when we look at Jehovah Witnesses and Mormonism, we, we see that they don't believe in Christ's deity and the equality he has with the Father. They don't believe he has always existed, but 
Rather, they argue that he was created. This teaching is so deceptive that if you do not know your Bibles, uh, many can be easily swayed to see their arguments. But here are some real red flags. When people have to retranslate the Bible to take out every instance referring to Jesus as God, there's a problem. And this is what the Jehovah Witnesses have done with their New World Translation. Right, so we should know that that is not a true translation, the New World Translation. They've changed every reference to Jesus' deity. So it is heretical. Mm-hmm. And in Mormonism, how they talk about Jesus is very deceptive. But when you dig into it, you'll find um, that they believe Jesus was born of the Father, just like all spirit children. Whatever immortality or godhood that Jesus possesses, they believe it to be an inherited attribute and power. They do not believe Jesus shares the same eternal nature as the Father. So it's very important that we all understand the truth that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man and that he has always existed and he is complete, completely equal with the Father. Yeah, again, because he, this Jesus is the only Jesus that can save us from mm-hmm. our sin. But now we are going to see a third part of the humility of Christ. So the first, just to review, the first again was his renunciation then the incarnation, and now we come to the crucifixion. Mm. Jesus just keeps going lower and lower and lower. So let's read verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his humility was to the point of death, but it, it gets very specific, specific to say even to, the, uh, even to death on a cross. Mm. And so we see first that he was obedient. And, you know, we are saved by works, just not ours, but his works. Uh, Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father, never had a sinful thought, word, or deed, poured his life out to death, not a drop of selfishness in him because he poured out every last drop of his life out for us. I mean, this really is the lowest point of humiliation, crucifixion. Uh, we know is such a violent means of punishing the lowliest, uh, the lowest of criminals. Um, it was for wretched, painful, degrading, shameful death. And, 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 and it didn't matter how horrible a criminal you were. If you were a Roman citizen, they would not subject you to that shame. Mm-hmm. But for others, they would. Yeah. On Good Friday, I like to reflect on just the timeline of how all the events happened. You know, this was torture. Uh, Mark fifteen twenty five says that Jesus was crucified uh, on the third hour. That would be 9 a.m. because the first hour of the day for Jews was 6 a.m. So he was on the cross uh, till 10 a.m., 11 a.m., noon, and then the sky went dark, and then there were three hours of darkness until finally he cried out that it is finished. And so he was suffering this whole time in immense pain, and he was beaten before all this happened. And, and the night before, we know he went through intense agony. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, that he could die from sorrow alone, just knowing what he would have to endure for us. And it was, it was the physical suffering, yes, but it was also the emotional suffering of all of his friends abandoning him, being betrayed, and, and worst of all, the spiritual suffering of separation from his father and absorbing the wrath uh, God's wrath for all of our sins, but he, he drank the cup. So this is, again, the humility of Christ. We see it, I think, in three steps. His renunciation, his incarnation, his crucifixion. But now we see the result of such humility, and that's verses 9 through 11. 
And what we see here now is the exaltation of Christ. Let me read this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here is the result of his humility. God exalted him, highly exalted him, it says, and gave him a name above every name. So he has been raised, he has ascended, he has been enthroned, and he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Yeah, and the scripture says, so that he has been highly exalted, so that redeemed saints and angels in heaven would bow, that Christians, unbelievers, and spirits on earth would bow, and even unbelievers and fallen spirits in the bowels of hell under the earth will bow. In the final day, there will be no atheists. There will be no disputing that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords with sovereign control over everything. This is really something to ponder, isn't it? To think about what this is telling us. Mm. Every celebrity, every sports star, every persecutor of the faith, every world leader who has ever existed, every Muslim, every Buddhist, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, on the last day, all will proclaim Christ is Lord. Yeah, and if they do not willingly proclaim it now, they will proclaim it on the last day. It will be made known to them. Believers will do it in adoration and worship, and unbelievers will do it in terrified fear, because those who have not bowed a knee to him and obeyed him while on earth will face the wrath of this sovereign king. The suffering servant will come back as a warrior king. He will make all wrongs right. He will rise up in the end, and everyone will will not just be made to bow, but to confess, to proclaim Jesus is Lord. And the Philippians would notice the weight of this statement. Yeah, this really would have meant uh, a lot to the Philippians in particular, because in their time, there was one Lord or Kyrios that they proclaimed in the Roman Empire. Caesar, right? He alone ruled over his empire uh, of tyranny. And once a year, every citizen was called upon to pledge allegiance to the Kyrios. To that Lord. Uh, this was emperor worship. It was designed by Nero to unite the empire. So every knee in the empire actually did bow to Caesar and took a pinch of incense. They placed it on the altar and they declared that Caesar is Lord. But this passage is saying that's, that's a lie. On the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is curios. Jesus is Lord. He is king. He is ruler. He is sovereign. And he is to be worshipped. He alone will be exalted in that day. Yeah, and so that, that exaltation is what we're seeing here in these verses. And what we're learning is that there is a cause and effect type uh, or a link between verses 8 and 9. Think about it. Christ's exaltation is made through his humiliation. And what Paul has really been doing all along in these verses is he's outlining this principle for us, that the same is true in our lives, uh, the same is true in the church and for you as a Christian, that God rewards humble servanthood. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew twenty three twelve tells us that as a promise. You know, in our home, we really like this quote by Stephen Lawson, and it's on your uh, study page as well, and it says this, No one who ever truly humbles themselves before God without being exalted by God, with, whether in this life or in the life to come. Uh, true humility will never be forgotten by God. 
God will see it, God will note it, and God will reward it. It is one thing to be exalted by man, but it is something else entirely to be exalted by God. This is the essence of true humility, to accept that it is our status before God, which is of ultimate importance. Mm. This has a lot of implication for us. Definitely. Yeah, on, on my best days, uh, the day goes better if I wake up with, with this outlook, with, with Christ's command in mind to, to deny myself, to take up my cross for that day and to follow him. You know, I can do that by laying aside my own to-do list to start with, which is hard for me, and asking, how can I serve my husband? How can I serve my kids? Who needs to be encouraged today? Who can I pray for? It's, it's being willing to listen and not always speak. And also humility is shown practically in how I receive correction. Am I defensive or do I admit when I'm wrong? And all of this goes against our nature, mm. doesn't it? That selfish ambition, that being conceit that we looked at last week. Um, but we need to see here again the, the principle and the promise that is being shown in these verses. That God lifts up the humble. Mm. That the way up is the way down for the believer. We need to trust that God sees our, um, our pursuit of Christ-like humility. Mm. We need to know that God honors us um, striving to have the mind of Christ and that God will, will lift us up in his way and in his time. You know, this is an amazing passage. Christ went from transcendent glory to unimaginable shame and then back again to glory. Well, as we close... Uh, what should we do with this? Uh, I think three things come to the surface today. Number one, let's believe this passage. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? You will either now or later. Don't wait until it's too late. Say with the saints that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, let's follow the lifestyle presented in this passage This is the attitude and the lifestyle that we should pursue. Philippians contains a good word about following various people, even people like Paul, but no one gives us a better model than Jesus. So let's believe this passage. Let's follow the lifestyle presented in this passage. And thirdly, let's tell the world about the message of this passage. You know, that is our mission, to tell the world that Jesus is Lord and that if they confess and believe in him as such, they will be saved. So all of us at home and around our tables, let's adore Christ. Let's have our minds be on him. Let our attitudes be like his. Let our actions reflect him. And all of this to the glory of God the Father. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Lord God, we say with the saints that Jesus Christ is Lord, who came, died, is risen, and exalted. Thank you for the amazing way in which you chose to come and to save us from the penalty of our sin. Would you help your people now to also have a mind like Christ, that we would be willing to stoop to serve, uh, willing to let go of our privileges and rights to serve others in love? May the selfish pride in our hearts be put to death so that we can live more sacrificially in love and in the places that you have sent us to, in our homes, our workplaces, schools, and to the ends of the earth. We pray this to the glory of God the Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us, and as for me and my house, we look forward to meeting around the table again next week. Mm -hmm.